white Jeep has its lights on. Interior lights. Oh, you got it? Okay, great. Awesome. Praise God. Wow, there is people here. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise God. How, you guys been enjoying this? This has been amazing, right? This is really, I want to thank you, Lisa, personally. I love it, what you're doing, the investment. I'd like her to get ready to do Colossians next year. All right? And then Galatians after that? Is that what you said you told me? No. <laughs> yeah, okay. Anyway, we'll, uh, at some point next year, we'll, we'll tackle Colossians. I think it'd be really great. So, Lord, bless Elisa right now in Jesus' name. And if you didn't get a handout, anybody need one? We'll go get, okay. Doug, would you grab those here in the cadenza out there? Thanks. Thanks, Dave. Am I on, Greg? Great. Thanks for help with the handouts, gentlemen. I appreciate that so much. Welcome. We have made it to week six. We're studying Ephesians 6 tonight. And I would be lying if I said I wanted to just keep going. <laughs> I think six weeks is enough. There have been a lot of mornings at 6.30 in the morning I'm reading MacArthur commentaries or I get in the bed and I've got 100 pages of MacArthur to skim or read. And so I, I really enjoy it. I mean, this is just so much fun for me. It's fun. And um, it's, just, it's just so much fun. <laughs> so I enjoy it, but I'll be happy to take a break and not read John MacArthur at 6.30 tomorrow morning. <laughs> I can just um, sit with the Lord and ask him, what do we want to do now? So, so Ephesians 6. So last week, I'm not going to review all of the weeks of Ephesians, but I guess I should pray first. I have a note that tells me to pray, so thank God for that. Father, I thank you for those that have come tonight and those that are still on their way, God. I thank you for the investment they have made, God. I thank you for the partnership that we've had here between my teaching and them coming and your Holy Spirit guiding us into all truth. And I pray, God, that you would guide us into all truth tonight. And Father, I pray that whatever is not of you would fall to the ground. And God, whatever is of you, God, I pray that Holy Spirit would bring a gift of grace along with the truth, God, to just help it go down a little easier. And Lord, we ask that you would be with us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week in Ephesians 5 and, and even in Ephesians 4, we've been talking about how to walk. The first three chapters of Ephesians were more doctrine and theology. And then the last three were the practical application, how to live it, how to walk. And last week we talked about how to walk in love and how to walk in light, and how to walk in truth. And then we tackled that hard subject of submission. And if you missed it, I do have a YouTube link to Ephesians 5 that I can send to you. I've got, I'm going to have all the uh, weeks of Ephesians on YouTube. But we learned that wives are to submit and respect their husbands. And then husbands, I think, have the harder, have the harder job. They're to love their wives as Jesus loved the church as their own bodies, and even as themselves. So it's a partnership. And this is our sixth week of reviewing this, the theme of Ephesians. You are rich in Christ. You are one in Christ. So walk worthy. That's that doctrine of Ephesians 1. We're rich. And then we've seen how we're one in Christ. The Jew and Gentile are made one. So this week, 
the chapter divisions, verses 1 through 9, Paul is going to continue that theme of submission that he started at the end of chapter 5. And he's going to talk about fathers and children and slaves and masters. And then what we're really going to focus on tonight is verses 10 through 24, which is spiritual warfare and the armor of God. So we're going to go really fast through that first section so we can really get to the meat of what I want to focus on tonight. So we talked about last week the, the ways that you know that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. There's singing, there's thankfulness, and there's submission. And submission, it means that we have the desire. First he said to submit to one another, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And that was Ephesians 5.21. So submission is an indication that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we can seek the welfare of others above our own needs and above our own desires. It's being mutually submissive to one another. So let's talk about fathers and children. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So Wearsby says that the modern version, if this was written in today's time, it might read like this. Parents, obey your children, for this will keep them happy and bring peace in the home. <laughs> that is how many homes today are run. We're appeasing the children just to keep them happy. But this is contrary to God's order in nature. It says, children, obey your parents. Gregory, do you remember learning that verse? Yeah, <laughs> children obey your parents. We said that verse a whole lot. <laughs> so in verse 2, Paul refers to a commandment that has a promise. And this is one of the Ten Commandments. It's Deuteronomy 5.16. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. So honoring our parents continues after we're adults. It's not just when we're children, but even as we're adults. It means to respect and love our parents and to care for them as they grow older. And I know that sometimes relationships with parents can be strained, but I believe even then that you can still honor your parents. What might that look like? It might mean sending a birthday card. It might mean sending a Mother's Day card or a Father's Day card, even when things are tough in your relationship. I know one time when I had a strained relationship with a parent, I talked with Annie Anthony, and she was telling me that she still called her mother to honor her, even when the relationship is strained. So that is hard, but God can give us the grace to walk in love and to continue to honor even when things are tough with our parents. I've always had a, um, a love in my heart for old ladies, and my mother taught that to me by taking me to old ladies' homes when I was a teenager because she loved old ladies. And as I've been an adult caring for some old ladies here in Wilmington, it's been sad to see that sometimes the families didn't honor them. And they didn't take care of them. So we want to continue to care for our parents, even in their old age. So Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
I'm sure that I, as a mother, provoked my children to anger quite a few times. But this verse is to fathers. So how do fathers provoke their children to anger? It's by saying one thing and doing another. It's by unfair discipline in the home, showing favoritism, blaming and not praising, making promises that aren't kept. So the opposite of provoking, what we want to do instead is to encourage. Now God has some more expectations of fathers, and we see this in Deuteronomy 6. And this is on your handout. I'm going to start with what's called the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so then he gives the list of commands. And this is on your handout. These commands shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk to them when you sit in your house, you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So if a father follows these two passages, what kind of involvement would he have with his children? Because home is really the place where children should be learning about the Lord, not just at church. So I just want to encourage you, something I thought about, and, and my children are grown, but we are still instructing them in the Lord. But are your children hearing more about the Lord and Jesus in the Bible at church than they are at home? If so, then you might not be following Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9, because basically we're to be talking about the Lord everywhere. My children could tell you when they were shut in the doors of the van, that meant mama got to preach a sermon. And they knew it when they were locked in the car, mama got to preach. And um, we just need to be talking about the Lord all the time with our children at every opportunity. So let's move on to um, Ephesians 6. 5 through 8. This is on your handout. Now, this is about slaves and masters, but the points that he makes here are applicable to Christian employees and Christian bosses. So, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. So a cross-reference, and I have looked ahead to Colossians, and, and I'm not sure, Pastor Tom, I need to pray a little more, because it closely parallels Ephesians. It, it has a lot of the same things. So I'm going to pray a little more about what I'm going to study next. But in Colossians 3, 22 through 24, it says, Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And I love this next verse, verse 23, Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. 
So whatever you do, do it as though you're working for the Lord and not for men. And I loved this quote from Warren Wearsby. He says, the best way to be a witness on the job is to do a good day's work. Doing a good day's work, having a good attitude, not grumbling, not stirring up dissension around the the coffee pot, but just do a good day's work. Show up, be on time. Do it for the Lord rather than for men. Ephesians 6, 9, he moves on to masters. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So the point here is that Christian employers and bosses, they should be servants. They're not there to sit on a pedestal and be served, but they should seek to serve. A cross-reference would be Mark 10, 43 through 45, And this is Jesus talking. But whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. So Friday, I drove to Greensboro with with Dela. She went with me to support me. And I spoke to a group of women at a church there, they had like a festival of tables where all the tables were decorated and eight chairs and it was beautiful. And it was, the event started at 6.30 and it was 6.15 and I was ready. My props were ready, my notes were ready, my sound check was done, the slides were good. And I saw the event planner who was in charge of everything and she was just very busily pulling things out of bags and out of wrappers and just trying to finish up her table. And so I've been taught as a Christian communicator You're not there to be the diva speaker. You're there to serve. And so I went over and I said, how can I help? And she just looked at me like, huh? And she's like, you're you're the guest. And I'm like, no, I'm here to serve you. And so that is our mission as Christians. Even when we're in a position where we're the honored person at an event, we are there to serve. When we come to church, we're not here just to get filled up and fed. (laughs) We're here to serve. So that should be your attitude. I see my pastor coming in, picking up the trash off the floor, and I think, why didn't I do that? Our attitude should be to serve. Where can we serve one another? So even as the employer, as the employee, as people in the body of Christ, when you're walking in the neighborhood, picking up, you know, pick up trash, you're there to serve. So let's move on to the armor of God. I think this church... We're very familiar that we are in a spiritual battle. We are in warfare. And the Christian who seeks to grow in the knowledge of and obedience of God and to serve the Lord faithfully, sadly, you're not going to find ministry easier. It gets harder, I think. I think as I've grown, ministry has gotten harder. Because as we, as we gain ground and as we conquer in certain areas and temptations and weaknesses, the enemy finds another vulnerable place to attack. He's always looking for that open door. He wants to take us down. He wants to stop us in our tracks. MacArthur says, a Christian who no longer has to struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil is a Christian who has fallen either into sin or perhaps complacency. A Christian who has no conflict 
is a Christian who has retreated from the front lines of service. And I'll be honest, there have been times where I've just said, God, can I just love you? Can I just like be a hermit, move to the mountains, do my Bible study, not have anything to do with people? Because ministry is hard. And, and, and just being a Christian is hard, right? Even if you're not doing a lot of ministry, just living in this world is hard because the devil wants to, to separate us from our God through doubt and discouragement. And we're going to see that tonight as we study. So what does Paul say? He starts this section off with saying, finally. So we've reached the end of his instructions in Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. So this term, strength of his might, we've seen that before in Ephesians. We saw it in week one, and it's in Ephesians 1, 18 through 20, in Paul's prayer of enlightenment. And I'm going to summarize it just a little bit, because that's a very wordy prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know, and then verse 19 says, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So the strength of his might that we're to be strong in is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at God's right hand in heaven. We're to be strong in that strength. When we're in Christ and we're one in him, his strength is our strength. And that strength is always more than sufficient for the battle. MacArthur says our own strength is never strong enough to oppose Satan. But when we are strong in the Lord, even a little of his strength is sufficient to win any battle. So let's look at this word schemes. It means craftiness, it means cunning, and it's deception. And that's a key word you're going to hear tonight, deception. Satan's evil schemes are, are built around stealth and deception. So these schemes include doubt about God's love for us. It includes temptations to sin, worldliness, pride, self-reliance, self-satisfaction, Really, any sin that the enemy tempts you into is one of his schemes. Slander, ridicule, causing division, persecution of the saints. This week, we've seen murder of the saints. That, is, that was one of the enemy's schemes. We need to stand firm against his, his schemes. And one thing I've found myself doing with, with the terrorist attacks, mass murder, is I've just been praying, Lord, whatever schemes are in the making, reveal them, bring them to light to the authorities, just uncover the plans of the enemy. And that is what we need to constantly be praying as these things happen more and more in greater measure. So let's look at who the devil is because we need to understand our enemy. We need to know who he is, where he is, and what he does so that we can overcome him. So just a few verses, a few cross-references. John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the beginning, 
and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 1 Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So to summarize those verses, Greg, can you help me? I'm stuck. That's where I want to be. For our struggle is against the devil. He is a murderer. He doesn't stand in the truth. No truth is in him. I love how this <laughs> is really explained for us. He lies from his nature. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. He's our adversary. He's looking for someone to devour. He's a thief, and he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. There we go. Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So unlike God, Satan is not omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at one time. So how does he wage war against us? He has a kingdom. He has an army. He has helpers. Those are demons. These are the rulers, the authorities, the dominions, the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. Hey, John. So happy to see you. I know Terry's been sick, so I'm glad you're here. Yay. Y'all can tell I'm just really comfortable by week six because I'm just like, hey, John, <laughs> it's good to see you. <laughs> oh, thank you, Lord. So on the handout, it says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but is against rulers, powers, forces of darkness, forces of wickedness. Sometimes I'll do a Facebook poll, and I decided not to do this, but I wanted to ask, what flesh and blood have you struggled with this week? What flesh and blood? Because I was afraid people would put the answers there in the comments. I wanted them to message me, but I didn't want to expose anyone. But just think about in your life, what flesh and blood have you struggled with this week? Has it been in-laws? Has it been neighbors? Has it been coworkers? Has it been people on social media with just going at you? What flesh and blood have you struggled with this week? I'm sure that we've all struggled with some flesh and blood this week. You might have struggled with your own flesh and blood this week, <laughs> with your own flesh and things you're believing. So our struggle is against the devil. Our true struggle or wrestling match is not against people, but against the devil and demons and their schemes. Our battle is not against human beings, our battle is against spiritual powers. MacArthur says, our greatest enemy is not the world we see, but the world we cannot see. We're wasting our time fighting against people when really we should be fighting against the devil. And his number one tactic, we saw all those descriptions about how he's a liar. His, his MO, his modus operandi is deception. So this was one of my conclusions as I studied this. 
our battle is not with people. Our battle is with deception. And this is key when it comes to forgiveness. We discussed forgiveness in week four, chapter four of Ephesians. And I shared kind of what I had, how I had processed with the Lord that people who hurt us fall into three categories. They're either hurting, they've been tempted and fallen into sin, or they've been deceived by the devil. And we discussed that we can have compassion on them and forgive because they're hurting, they're sinful, or they're deceived. We can have empathy and compassion on them and forgive. So how do we stand firm in warfare? This is the really good news. This is the good part. Colossians 2.15, and this is talking about Jesus. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. 1 Peter 3.22, which is talking about Jesus. He says, he's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. And in Revelation 20, 20, this talks about the devil's future. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the devil and his minions are defeated. They're disarmed. They're triumphed over. They're made a public spectacle. They're subjected to Christ, and they have a horrible future. I've always heard that quote, when the devil reminds you of your past, just remind him of his future. So if this is true, then why do we have to learn about warfare? If he's already defeated, then why are we in a battle now? In the ultimate sense, the church's battles with Satan are already won. But we live in this tension of the already but not yet. It's already done, but it's not yet fully manifested. And I did just a little study about that quote because it grabbed my attention already, but not yet. And I found this on the Our Daily Bread website. It says, if Jesus has won the victory over sin, suffering, and death, why do we still sin, suffer, and die? To understand this seeming contradiction, we must recognize the already but not yet, tension of the gospel. On the one hand, God's kingdom has already come in the person of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross so that he might destroy the devil. But on the other, on the other hand, the perfect kingdom towards which he pointed awaits his personal return to the earth. So we live in that tension of the already but not yet. Satan may win some battles, but he has already lost the war. That was another quote that I found. So Christ defeated the enemy, and he has no ground to stand upon, but sometimes we can give him an opportunity, a place to stand. And one thing you're going to see as we talk about this battle, it's all about a wrestling match between the enemy and believers. And we can give the enemy ground. We can give him a strong foothold to stand upon when we sin and when we believe his lies. 
Ephesians 4.27, and this was in the context of laying aside the old self and putting on the new self. It says, do not give the devil an opportunity. An opportunity means a spot or location, an occasion for acting. So it's a foothold on this wrestling mat with the enemy. So how can we give the devil an opportunity? It's when we fall into sin and when we believe lies. It gives him a foothold on the wrestling mat of our lives. So let's look at Paul's instructions, what we're to do. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm on that wrestling mat against the schemes of the devil. And then also a parallel verse, if you jump ahead to verse 13, Ephesians 6, 13, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So this term, full armor, in the Greek is just one word. It's a compound word, and it means all and then weapons. So when it says full armor, that doesn't mean we can pick up some and leave the others behind. It's one term. It's one word, full armor. It's the whole kit and caboodle. It's one thing. We need all of the armor. So we've talked a lot these six weeks about the five W's and an H. We interrogate scripture by asking who, what, when, how, where, and why. So looking at these two parallel verses, Ephesians 6, 11, and 13, who, us, what are we to do? Take up and put on the full armor of God. Why? To resist and stand firm against the devil's schemes when in the evil day. I think we could all agree that's today. Today is the evil day. How? Having done everything. Having done everything. And there are some battles that you're in that you can, you can manage yourself through prayer. There are battles where you have to ask others to pray for you. There are battles where you need to go and get some prayer ministry. There are battles where you need to confess your sin to a whole lot of people so that you can uncover the lie of the enemy. It's having done everything. Having done everything. And if you don't know what else to do, ask someone who's older in the, and wiser in the faith, what do I do now? How do I stand against this? Having done everything. So this term, stand firm, it's repeated. It's repeated three times. I'm not going to finish the verse yet, but it's repeated three times in four verses. And what it means is to continue to stand, to be of a steadfast mind, to make, to stand. In the military sense, it means to hold a critical position while under attack. I love the word, this is a side note, but I love the word persevere in the Greek because it also means to just stand. It means to remain in place, to not move from where you are, to, to stay in place. So we resist and stand firm against the enemy's schemes by taking up and putting on the full armor of God. And this term, put on, it carries the idea of once and for all, of permanence. 
So a cross-reference, which I've already mentioned, is 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Firm in your faith. Stand firm. So to stand firm, we must live obedient, scripture-dominated, spirit-empowered lives. It just goes back to renewing our minds. And what we're going to see is the importance of renewing our minds of the word in each of the pieces of the armor of God. Ephesians 6.14, it's on your handout and your slide. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So let's jump into that. We're going to just stop right there because we're going to go piece by piece. So Satan is a liar, and his job is to deceive, and that's why we need to gird our loins with truth. So what lies are you believing about yourself, and what lies or false statements have been pronounced over you? Sometimes if you're not sure in a situation, just ask, Holy Spirit, what lie am I believing? I've been pretty open lately about the struggle that I've had for about a year now with anxiety and panic attacks. And I've had a long time to examine what is the source. And I think a lot of it came just from some trauma. And there's a lot of transition in my life. It's like somebody pulled the carpet out under me. I'm no longer a stay-at-home homeschooling mom, but I'm an empty nesting housewife who's doing ministry. So there's been a lot of change. But as I've gone to the Lord, I've known what the triggers, it's usually tasks, in time. Those two things. And it's funny because I can stand up here and teach you guys for an hour and then go home and unpack my bag and have a panic attack because it's tasks and time. And the lies, of, as I've asked the Lord, what are the lies? It's that I have too much to do. I don't have enough time. No one will help me. And I can't be late. That's a really, and so when I'm at home getting ready, I can start to feel anxious because there's too much to do and not enough time and no one to help me and I can't run late. And so I've started to apply the truth. The truth is, and I asked God this week, God, what's the truth about my time? And he said, in everything there's a season. His time is ordained. If I'm late, it's ordained by him. And there's grace, right? Say, yes, we'll give you grace, Lisa. You can run late. The truth is I can be late. There's grace. The truth is there are people that will help me and that God will help me. My help comes from the Lord. That's the truth that I'm speaking over the lie. And one thing Brian said, he says, you have more time than you think you do. Because when I don't have enough time, that's a pauper mentality. That's orphan mentality. I don't have enough. It's a poverty spirit. I have more time than I think I do. So I'm speaking these lies. I'm speaking the truth over the lies. So in your situations and fear that you're struggling with, or maybe something in your identity, something that's holding you back, just ask Holy Spirit, what's the truth? And he'll tell you the truth. Or you might need to ask someone else. I've been telling Brian, these are the lies I'm believing. Brian was able to say, you have more time than you think you do. He's able to speak truth. 
So go to the word to find truth. We have to know the truth to combat the lies of the enemy because they're just stinking lies. I mean, how irrational is that, that I don't have enough time to unpack my bag? It's stupid, but we need to know the truth to combat the lies. And truth is a key word in Ephesians along with grace and walk. It's used five times. Jesus' prayer for those who would believe in him in John 17, 17, he said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So in the armor of God, truth is important because for a Roman soldier, the belt held the breastplate in place and it held the scabbard for the sword. We would call that the holster in the South. It held the scabbard for the sword. It was the anchor. It was, it was what gave them the stability to stand firm. And it's been many a year since I lifted weights. But when I would lift weights, I, I wore a belt. And when you did squats, sorry, I'm loose back there. Got it. But when I did squats, it held me in place. It gave me stability in my core. And that's what the belt of truth does. It's what enables us to wear the armor of God. MacArthur says the content of God's truth is absolutely essential for the believer in the battle against the schemes of Satan. Without knowledge of biblical teaching, we're subject to Ephesians 4.14, which talks about being tossed here and there and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So you've heard me say this before, we need to spend time regularly in God's word. And I shared with you a couple weeks ago that my goal is to spend five days a week in the Bible. And I didn't share that to condemn you or to make you think, oh, well, I'm not like Lisa. I shared that to inspire you that you can do it. It took me many, many years to regularly spend time in God's word. And I think that's a common battle is how do I do it? on a regular basis. How do I find the time? And I'm a housewife, so I have more time than those of you that work a full-time job. And also, this is my calling. This is my job. This is what I do. But the point that I really want you to catch is regularly in God's Word, not just a devotional, not just a blog post, but in the Word. What that looks like for you will be different than for me. So it says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate covered the vital organs of the soldier, especially the heart, and then the innards, <laughs> the inner man. In an ancient Jewish thinking, the heart represented the mind and the will, and the bowels represented the seat of emotions. And don't you know when the enemy comes to attack, it's against our mind and against our emotions, our feelings. But we're protected by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. So what is righteousness? In the Greek, it means correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. It's right standing with God. The root word is innocent, faultless, and guiltless. And that's a high standard. So I want to share with you something about righteousness that's fairly new to me. And hopefully I'm not going to confuse anybody, including me. <laughs> but there's two different types of righteousness, according to the, the commentaries. There's imputed righteousness. This is the really good news. 2 Corinthians 5.21. 
He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So before God, we are righteous. We, in, positionally, we are righteous before God. We're permanently dressed in this imputed righteousness. It's the basis of our Christian life. It protects us from hell. It's the basis of our Christian living. But according to the MacArthur commentary, it doesn't protect us. This imputed righteousness doesn't protect us from Satan in this life. So what about practical righteousness? The breastplate of righteousness that we put on as our spiritual armor is that practical righteousness of living a life that's obedient to God. 1 John 3, 7 says, Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. So as I was studying this, I listened to the John and Lisa Bevere podcast this week. It's called Conversations with John and Lisa. It's really short, and it's, all, it's always full of truth. But they were talking about a similar subject. They were talking about um, positional holiness. We're all holy and blameless before him, and practical or behavioral holiness, because we always don't act holy. And he compared it to a husband and wife. Let's see if I can find my notes. So Brian and I are married, and I'm as married as I'm going to be. 22 years ago, I was married. Hopefully, 30 years from now, we're still married. We're always married. But if I'm out in the hallway flirting with somebody, I ain't acting married. I am married, but I may not be acting like I'm married. And so we are righteous before God, but sometimes we're not acting righteous. In the same way, we are holy before God. But sometimes we're not acting holy. So there's what we are before God when he sees us. He sees Jesus. He sees righteous and holy. And then there's what we're doing in the darkness of our homes, which is different. So I believe the armor of God, this breastplate of righteousness, this is the righteousness that comes from daily living. Okay? So MacArthur says, to put on the breastplate of righteousness is to live in daily, moment-by-moment obedience to our Father. This part of God's armor is holy living. It's practical righteousness. So how does this practical righteousness help us in spiritual warfare? We know that the enemy accuses the brethren day and night. So the enemy is always accusing us. And for many of us, he's still accusing us of past sin or even the sin of yesterday that you've already repented for. So how does the breastplate of righteousness help us? Oh, I'm sorry. I should have shown that slide. I got distracted. So there it is. Imputed righteousness makes practical righteousness possible. But only, I think I skipped it, but only obedience to the Lord makes practical righteousness a reality. I think I said that right. Moving on. Okay, this is the good thing. Righteousness allows us to say not true when we're accused by the enemy. Because he's accusing, and we can say not true. We can say, Jesus made me righteous. I'm living a righteous life. In my past, I was a rebellious thief, druggie, drinking, wanton woman. 
that's not who I am now. And when he comes, when the enemy comes to seduce me with temptation because that's how he lures us in, it's called seduction, I can say that is not true. That is not who I am. I have been made righteous, and I'm doing my best to live a righteous life. But if the enemy comes to you and accuses you of cheating on your taxes, and it's true, then the breastplate of righteousness, it ain't going to help you. That's the shield. But it's not going to help you if it's true. What you need to do at that point is repent of your sin. That's the only thing that's going to help you in the battle at that point. So when he comes to accuse and it's true, then that's when, that's when you need some help. You need to go to a friend and say, I'm struggling with sin. You need to go to prayer ministry. Get some help for that. Because we don't want the enemy to take you down in sin. Wearsby says, Satan is the accuser, but he cannot accuse the believer who's living a godly life in the power of the Spirit. The life we live either fortifies us against Satan's attacks or makes it easier for, us, for him to defeat us. Okay, so let's look at um, the gospel of peace. Oh, I did it too fast. No, I'm good. Okay. So Ephesians 6.15 says, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So this word shod in the Greek, it means to bind under one's feet. Like if you take some leather and you bind something underneath your feet, much like this pair of sandals. And preparation means preparedness or readiness. So the Roman soldier wore sandals with hobnails. Like athletes wear cleats today, and that would give him better footing for battle. So when we are binding the gospel of peace under our feet, it gives us better footing for battle and enables us to stand firm against Satan, his minions, his schemes, and deception. So what does this verse mean? I always thought that it meant to be ready to share the gospel. That, is, that was always my understanding of this verse. And it can mean that. But I want you to go with me on a journey and let's just look at it in its context and see a different meaning that it can have. So the question is, does this verse mean, are you prepared to share the gospel of peace or does the gospel of peace make you ready for battle? Which one is it? It can be both, but let's just look at it. So a couple other translations. The New Living Translation, which Pastor Tom likes, which is a thought-for-thought translation. And this is on your handout. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. The NIV says, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So we have to look at scripture within its context. What is the context of Ephesians 6? Is it evangelism or is it warfare? What is the context? MacArthur says, in, a, in the Ephesians text, Paul is not talking about preaching or teaching, but about fighting spiritual battles. And he's not talking about traveling, but standing firm. His subject is not evangelizing the lost, but fighting the devil. So MacArthur says, 
In this passage, the gospel of peace refers to the good news that believers are at peace with God. I love that. I feel like that's part of my calling is to share that we are at peace with God. A couple cross-references. Romans 5.1 in the New Living says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. And I've always loved um, 1 John 3.21. It says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So just breathe that in. How does it feel to be at peace with God? That feels really good. That feels really good. And knowing that you're at peace with God and not wallowing in guilt and shame, that enables you to stand firm. If you're struggling with shame, the enemy is is more able to take you out. But when we know that we have peace with God, the good news, the gospel of peace, we can stand firm. MacArthur says, the gospel of peace is the marvelous truth that in Christ we are now at peace with God and are one with him. Therefore, when our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, we stand in the confidence of God's love for us, his union with us, and his commitment to fight for us. When the enemy comes to attack us, our feet are firmly rooted on the solid ground of the gospel of peace. So being at peace with God is what enables us to stand firm in battle. When we're confident in God's love and we're secure, we can fight any battle. So I'm going to leave that with you. You can figure out which one you think it is or you can agree that it's both. So let's look at the shield of faith. This is the shield of faith, and Mary Esther brought in these props for me. Ephesians 6, 16. In addition to all, <laughs> taking up the shield of faith with, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So the shield was large, usually four feet by two feet. It was made of wood, and it was covered with leather. And as the soldier held it before him, it protected him from spears, arrows, and fiery darts. And Pastor Tom has referred to this many times. The edges of the shield were made to interlock with others that had their shields. And then they could move forward in battle as a wall, advancing against the enemy. So when it's shield of faith... I believe that this is not necessarily your saving faith, which is part of it, but really in terms of doing battle, these are the promises of God that you're doing battle with. It's trust in the promises and power of God. So what kind of flaming arrows come at us? Again, we've, we've discussed this temptation to sin, deception, lies about our identity, doubt that God's going to help us, doubt that God loves us. Jealousy, pride. MacArthur says every temptation is the temptation to doubt and distrust God. The purpose of all of Satan's missiles is to cause believers to forsake their trust in God, to drive a wedge between the Savior and the saved. And I know, Pastor Tom, you've talked about when there's fear, you're believing some lie about God. And that was when I realized, when you taught that, that's when I realized I believed God wouldn't help me, 
that was the lie I was believing. So how does the shield of faith help us to, as we trust in the promises of God? The cross-reference, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, goes right along with warfare. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So the shield of faith, as we hold it up and as we declare the truth, the promises of God, we're able to destroy those speculations, those, those lies that we're believing about God, the lofty things raised up against the knowledge of him. We can take every thought that doesn't line up with God's word, we can take it captive to the obedience of Christ. And so the shield of faith, trusting in God's promises from the Bible, enables us to fight. When the enemy comes to say, no one will help you, that's the lofty thing that is against the knowledge of God. The truth is, my help comes from the Lord. That's the promise. That's where my faith is, that my help comes from the Lord. So how do we practically do this? We apply what we believe inwardly, which is the truth of God's word, to outward circumstances. We extinguish Satan's flaming missiles where he tempts us to doubt God by believing God. <laughs> so on Friday, before I left for Greensboro to speak in front of 130 women, I had like a full-on panic attack. It was like, Lord, what was I thinking when I said I wanted to travel and speak? Lisa was not thinking at that moment. And I just I had this fear that I was going to get up, stand up, and I had pretty much, I had 30 minutes worth of speaking, and I'd somewhat memorized it. It was a script. And I was sure I was going to get up there and bumble all of my words, as I had when I had practiced in front of Brian, bumbled some words. It was going to be a mess that I would be nervous and, you know, mess up my slides. And so in the middle of that, I just got on my face before the Lord. And so I, I bind anxiety, I bind panic, I bind fear, I nail them to the cross, I, I did all the spiritual warfare things, and then I said, I did that three, what is it, one, two, three, skidoo, however we called it, I skidooed. And I said, God, what is the truth? What is the truth? I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. And what I heard Jesus say was, I am alive in you. I am alive in you. I had read that verse in my devotional that morning. And Jesus said, I am alive in you. And I'm like, okay, Jesus, you're alive in me. So when I get up there to speak, you will enable me. And it wasn't about perfection or being polished. It was about the people. And so the Lord helped me. And, and by the time I got in my car at 9 o'clock, I was good. I was good to go. And when I stood up to speak, I was not, well, usually about 10 minutes before I speak, I'm a little scared. <laughs> but when I got up there, I was fine. And it wasn't perfect, but Jesus in me did it. But I had to take up the shield of faith. What's the truth here? What's the truth? So let's look at the helmet of salvation and take up the helmet of salvation. Ephesians 6, 17 we have been taught well that in the Greek, salvation means salvation, healing, and deliverance. 
A cross-reference is 1 Thessalonians 5.8. Since we are of the day, let us be sober, sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So there's a hope that we are already saved now, but there's a hope as well of our future, our full, complete salvation. So what does a helmet do? It protects our brains, our thoughts, our belief, our decision-making. The fact that the helmet was related to salvation indicates that the enemy's blows are against our thoughts. It's against our security and our assurance in Christ. And if I've said this before, but if we don't feel rightly connected to God because of guilt and shame, then it's hard to stand in confidence in warfare. We have to know the basis of our salvation, which is rooted in the word of God. So the enemy comes against us with discouragement and doubt. Has anyone been discouraged this week? Even just a little bit? Discouragement and doubt. Those are the enemy's tools against us. He points to our failures, our sin, unresolved problems, poor choices, our health, to cause us to lose confidence. And it's it's the... The active, MacArthur says, it's the active, working, striving believer who's most tempted by discouragement. And then he says, the person who, has never, who never attempts anything has little to be discouraged about. So it's the believers that are, um, you know, walking out their faith. So let's look at three aspects of salvation. Past. So trusting in Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin. This is where we're justified. I'm not going to go into that, but I'll just let you go home and Google justification. But the helmet of salvation, it justifies us. It saves us from the penalty of sin. It proclaims innocent when the enemy shouts guilty. The helmet of salvation proclaims the blood when the enemy is reminding you of your past sin. So that is that is what when we've, that is the past part of our salvation. We have been saved. And right now we are still being saved. <laughs> and I don't have that cross-reference, but this aspect is sanctification. This is as we're being um, freed from the power of sin and being made more and more like Jesus. But it's the final aspect of salvation that I believe gives us the most hope. And that's the future aspect of salvation. It's glorification. It's that one day we're all going to be saved together. We're going to be made like Jesus. We'll see Jesus face to face. We'll be in heaven. Jesus is making a room ready for us now. No more death, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. And God will be with us. And Carrie and I have front row seats, don't we, Carrie, to just worship before the throne for eternity. I just want to lay on my face for eternity. That's just that's what I want to do. I know y'all are all going to have different things in eternity, but that's my goal. I just want to worship forever with Carrie sitting beside me. Right, sweetie? She holds my hand. Cross-reference. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen, this temporary life, are temporal. But the things that are not seen are eternal. 
MacArthur says, it's this final aspect of salvation that's the real strength of the believer's helmet. If we lose hope in the future promise of salvation, there's no security in the present. So our present struggle with Satan is going to come to an end. He's going to be cast into that lake of fire and we'll be with God in heaven. We'll be victorious in the end. So let's look at the sword of the spirit, Ephesians 6, 17. A sword in the Greek was a short two-edged sword. It was more of a dagger, an offensive weapon. This is, this is a really big sword. So here's our prop tonight, our sword. But it was an offensive weapon. How did Jesus, Jesus is described as um, in Revelation as having a sharp sword coming from his mouth. So how did Jesus fight with his sword? He fought with the word. In Matthew 4, we see when the enemy was tempting him, Satan had come to command Jesus to, to um, turn stones into bread. And in Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. So Jesus fought with Scripture, and that is what we fight with. We know Scripture. The Christian who does not know God's Word can't use it well. I mean, if you, if you don't know it, you don't have it to fight with. So we need to know God's Word. It is our most powerful weapon against the enemy. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. So as we conclude talking about these pieces of the armor of God, what I want you to see, as a Bible teacher, I want you to see they're all rooted in the Word of God. They're all rooted there. The belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet, your feet shod with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, so the armor of God is based on the word of God, and this is hard, but unless you're regularly in the word, you aren't wearing any armor. You're spiritually naked, defenseless against the devil. So I know that's strong, but it's true. It's true. So I want to encourage you. If you're not regularly in the word of God, that might mean five minutes a day for you, if that's all you can do. But be there regularly and don't fight without your armor because you're not fighting, you're losing them. You're being defeated, okay? So let's move on to prayer. That's how he brings his letter to a close. He mentions it three times. Ephesians 6, 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So does prayer have a role in warfare or has he changed the subject to something else? He says, be on the alert. And you would need to be on the alert if there wasn't an enemy prowling around trying to devour you. So the context of this verse is warfare. So prayer is the seventh piece to the armor of God. It has to go along with it. So what does Paul say to do? We're just going to fly through this. He says, pray always. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says to pray without ceasing. That means from when you wake up in the morning until you doze off at night, you're having a constant conversation with God. 
all day long, all day long. Pray with all prayers. That means there's more than one type of prayer. There's intercession, there's petition, there's thanksgiving, supplications. So pray with all types of prayer. Pray in the spirit. I don't have time to go into this, but I'll just give you a cross-reference. Romans 8, 26 through 27. In the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So pray in the spirit. That may be praying in your prayer language. It may be spirit-led prayer. Pray in the spirit. He says to be alert. So we're to pray with our eyes open. Be alert. Keep on praying. This means persevere. Stick to it. Don't quit. I, I read this in a commentary. Keep on praying until the spirit stops you or the Father answers you. Keep on praying. And then pray for all the saints. We need to pray for each other. So prayer is what, us, what enables us to stand firm in warfare. It's the energy that enables the Christian soldier to wear the armor, because the armor can be heavy, <laughs> and to wield the sword, because it takes muscles to do that. Prayer gives us that foothold on the wrestling mat so that we can stand firm and resist the enemy, resist the devil, his schemes, resist deception. So Ephesians 6, 19, Paul says, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So prayer, like grace, we talked about how God's grace empowers us. We talked about how the Holy Spirit empowers us. Prayer, like grace, and the Holy Spirit empowers us and enables us to do what God has called us to do. And I love that Paul isn't asking for a prayer for his safety or his provision or his comfort. But he was asking for prayer for his ministry, for the effectiveness of his ministry. I heard on a podcast today that the best um, advice this person would give to leaders was to get over yourself because it's not about you. And every time I pick up my utmost for his highest, if I could sum my utmost for his highest, the whole devotional, in about maybe 12 words, it's, it's not about you. It's about God and the people God sends you to. So that is what Paul's prayer demonstrates for us. He's not praying for himself, but he's saying, pray that I would be bold. Pray that I would carry out this ministry. Pray that I would boldly make known the, the ministry. He was an ambassador in chains. He wants to proclaim it boldly as he ought to speak. So before I show you the last slide, I'm just going to tell you a little secret. At the end of every Bible study that I've ever coordinated or taught, my family, or taught, my family does something. What are we doing, Greg? Are you back there? Where are we going? Well, yes, after after tonight, where are we going tonight? Krispy Kreme. 
we always go to Krispy Kreme and celebrate. So I, I didn't eat dinner, and I'm having a glazed donut and hopefully one of those, like, pumpkin fall donuts. So we go celebrate because it's fun, but it's work, and we just celebrate the completion of it. Yay, praise the Lord. So as Paul brings his letter to a close, what does he do? And I just love this. This is a MacArthur quote. Ephesians begins by lifting us up to the heavenlies and ends by pulling us down to our knees. And I love that. He pulls us to our knees. So in closing, let me read the last few verses of Ephesians 6, verses 21 through 23. He says, but that you may also know about my circumstances, how I'm doing. Oh, I don't even know how to say that. Ty. Tychicus, thank you. The beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus with incorruptible love. Remember Ephesians 1 started with grace. And peace from God our Father, and He ends with grace and peace. So I want to leave you tonight with grace and peace. I know I've maybe stepped on a few toes, maybe challenged you a little bit tonight, maybe brought your awareness to some things you weren't aware of, but I want to leave you with grace and peace. And if you're struggling in an area, get some help. We're here to help you. Come, come share it with me. Come pray with me. Pray with Pastor Tom. We want to help you. If you want to learn how to get, how to have regular Bible study, I would love to teach class on how to be able to study your Bible regularly. It took me probably 20 years to figure that out, but you can do it. So Father, I thank you for those here tonight. I just ask that you would just fill them with grace and peace, God. Grace and peace. God, would you enable us by your grace to stand firm against sin, to walk in righteousness, to do what's right, God, to regularly spend time in your word. God, without grace and Holy Spirit, we can't do any of that. So God, I thank you that you didn't leave us empty-handed. You didn't give us instructions and say, do it on your own, but you gave us Holy Spirit to help us. You gave us grace for when we stumble. You gave us that empowering, enabling grace. So God, I just ask that you would fill each one of us with your grace and your spirit so that we can walk worthy of your calling, so that we can use our riches in Christ and walk on in Christ. And I bless all of these in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, listen, if it's, uh, if it's not Colossians, it needs to be something, okay? I'm looking so at... So you be praying because... I'm praying. Uh, I'm looking at John. Uh, let's all stand and let's <laughs> give her a clap. Thank you for Thank being you. so good Thank and you. teaching us so well. Thank you. I love to get different perspective. I like a female perspective. I really do. There's a difference. You know, this guy's going to talk about warfare and you're... But it's good. I really... Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, just one announcement. Sunday... A good friend of our house from Israel will be here, Pastor David Decker. So it's going to be an awesome time. Well, I, I have no idea what he's going to share, but it'll be good. It'll be current with what's going on probably in Israel. And so uh, tell some folks and come. I think it'll really be an awesome time. God bless you all. Thank you. Have a good night.